Welcome everybody to my podcast, Big Little Small Talk. I'm Megan O'Hara-Sullivan and I love to talk, but I also love to listen. If you're new here, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome listeners to Big Little Small Talk. We're here today with someone who you would all be familiar with. He's a long-standing personality here in the Darling Downs, a radio personality, a journalist, a storyteller, and his name is David Iliff. Welcome, David, to Big Little Small Talk. Megan, thank you very much for having me. It's an honour. Oh, well, it's an honour to have you. Your your voice would be so familiar. How many years have you been broadcasting here in Toowoomba? Oh, here in Toowoomba since 2009, and most of that has been getting up at the crack of dawn so uh, that's why I always say don't ask me to do the maths but a long time long enough to sort of feel like part of the community which is good and I think you know that that voice at the end of the radio you wake up in the morning you drive to work you would be so dearly held to so many people I think well you don't realize that sometimes I think because when you've been doing it for a long time I mean I love it you know I do love the job there's no doubt about it but it's only when you go out and do outside broadcasts or you go and speak to a group or something and you you meet people afterwards that you realize what value that company is which you don't sort of realize you hope that you're choosing interesting people to talk to and you know you plan interviews and research interviews but nine times out of ten people will come up and just say you know you've been on the radio you know in our um kitchen when we've been making breakfast and having breakfast since uh, for as long as i can remember and then you think wow i have been doing it for a long time and B, it's less about the interviews and more just about being a welcoming voice and being good company. And that's that's a real honour, you know. Yeah. It does make you think that you could probably just get on air and just have a chat with fellow presenters and, and uh, you know, maybe we put too much effort into it. <laughs> but, ah. yeah, but I think it's a... You, you're aware that it is that company thing and that's a real privilege to be that for people, I think, mm. yeah. How, how tricky is it to have longevity in a job like that? I would imagine that um, you know they're looking at ratings, maybe not so much with the ABC, but um, in commercial radio, I know Lee Faulkner's been here for a long time. Is yeah. that unusual nowadays? Um, I think it's probably more normal in the regions, I think, than, than probably in the, the capital cities. I mean, Lee's been there... You know, for so long, you know, he's virtually become part of the furniture as well. I think with the ABC, they probably don't look at ratings as much as, say, the commercials do. But having said that, if, you know, they might do ratings or buy into ratings maybe once a year, and if they found consistently that, you know, the ratings were well down or they were getting a lot of people complaining about one particular presenter, then they probably would act on it but I don't think it's quite as cutthroat in the capital cities where you know she was sometimes if you you know bomb in the ratings maybe twice in a row or something they'd start looking at what wasn't working you know and um, so I think probably the the question it's more a challenge is how long can you keep sort of getting up at that hour because my alarm goes off at quarter past four and you never really get used to it. And even though I've been doing it for a long time, and I was doing breakfast radio in Tasmania before I came up here and had a brief reprieve when I did drive for three years when I first came up here and then back on to breakfast. And um, you never, you can never go to bed early enough to compensate for that because, you know, like most of the time, I mean, I should really have to be in bed by 7.30 and lights out by 8 to get the full eight hours. 
But no matter how tired you are, you just can't really do that. So you've always got this sleep debt that resembles, you know, like a, the actual debt of a third world country or something, <laughs> you know, and you can never catch up. But, um, you know, but for as long as I enjoy it, it's, it's great. And there are pluses to working those hours as well. You know, you have the afternoons off and more time to do jobs around the house. Oh, and, great. Know, everybody yes. wins. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Except for me. That's right. Well, I want to talk some more about you in a little while, David, but... What I want to talk to you today about is your fascinating parents. Now, I can remember when I first met you many years ago, you said that you are one of two sons of Melody and Jim Eilif, who were a seminal part of Brisbane television back in the 1950s, I think, was the beginning, 60s perhaps. So, now... Your mother, Melody, who was um, Welsh, she was born in Bundaberg and she was the first woman to win a Logie for news reading. Um, And we want to talk about that in a little bit too. But can you talk about um, her beginnings? She was born in Bundaberg. How did she become a producer on the Channel Niners, your father's show, as a production assistant? How did she go from Bundaberg to that? Well, she when she grew up in Bundaberg, and I'm not sure what, the impetus was for for her but she just always wanted to work on on radio and in Bundaberg there was only one radio station besides the ABC uh, was 4BU and so she but also in those days there were a lot more jobs off air like the whole radio industry has changed hugely I and mean, this is going back to the 19 early 1950s I guess but the whole industry has changed a lot so I think her first job at 4BU, they would never just put you straight on air, no matter how much you begged them or no matter how much you told them it was your destiny or whatever. <laughs> you know, they didn't go for that. You had to do your time. So she was a record librarian, you know, which is incredible now that music is just sent to you electronically and the computer sorts it itself and the, even what you play is spit out of a computer and you're told. But there was a job for a record librarian. And there was one... She did that for a couple of years at 4BU in Bundaberg. And... There was one time that the afternoons announcer, I think, was or someone who just played classical music, and this is no one plays classical music outside of classic FM now. Um, for an hour, they were off sick, so they said to to mum, to Mel, okay, Mel, you can do this, but you can't talk, so you can just play the songs that whatever his name was has set out for this hour, but you're not allowed to talk, introduce them or, or back announce them. So mum said that she rang up her parents all excited. When you listen between one and two, you won't hear me talk, but when you hear the music, that's me putting the needle on and playing them. And she was so excited. But then, you know, she eventually got on, on air and, um, and loved it. But in the end, she decided to move to Brisbane because that's what everyone else was, was doing. And um, she worked at 4BK, I think it was, or maybe 4BH, but again, not on air. It was like on air was this sacred territory that someone had to die before you got that opportunity. So she was a record librarian um, down there. So it was a, a lot harder, I think, to get on air um, you know, in those days, both in regionals and in capital cities, than it is now. So really, when she ended up on television, that was really the... She went from being on air at 4BU to being off air roles for a long, long time and then a bit like 4BU being sort of thrown in at the last minute because someone was sick being the voice announcer and suddenly they got all these calls saying, who's that 
fantastic voice, you know, because she really did have a wonderful voice. So it was all down to, to chance, her opportunities. It was, it's quite an amazing story, really. Yeah. That's right. And so how did she get the job then? Did she, had she always been on the Channel Niners? And was that always your father's show? Or Yeah, so it's, um, in ter- at that time when... Because <clears throat> television started in 1959 in Queensland, but it had been going, I think, for maybe two or three years in Melbourne and, and Sydney. So it was a very gradual rollout. But at the time that television was starting in Brisbane and QTQ9, where Mum and Dad worked, was the, the first one... But the logical place, because no one had ever done um, television before, the logical place to find the people you were going to put on air and the people who were going to fill any of the off-air roles was radio, because that was the only other broadcasting business that was around. So at the time, it must have been incredible. I mean, considering now how keenly fought after any job on television in a capital city is, at the time, it must have just been like, if you put your hand up, you'll get a Guernsey. You know? So everyone else in the 4BH... Uh, studio every any job down there off air or on air everyone was just going up the mountain so mum didn't want to be the only one left at 4BH and all her mates were going up the mountain so she just put a hand up and it was basically oh yeah you can do this you know it was like sort of filling spots on a roster almost so mum ended up with this job which had never existed at the time which was production assistant I think for this kids show called the the Channel Liners and yeah so they you know mum and dad sort of met there and um, developed a relationship there even though dad was 16 years mum's senior but we might get to that but her on-air role was just purely by accident because they used to have and this is another example of how television has changed they used to have a booth announcer so if you watch commercial television and someone comes on the commercial breaks and says up next um, who's going to get voted off on survivor blah 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 well that used to all be done live so the booth announcer um, that was their job and a bit like for BU, the booth announcer on this particular day had been called in sick or something at a moment's notice. So they put the call out, has anyone here done radio? <laughs> and mum goes, oh yeah, I have. And so like, oh, read this. Yeah, you sound all right. Okay, you're on the booth announcer for this afternoon, blah, blah, blah. So mum loved that. But all these calls started coming in saying, who was this fantastic voice? You know, who is that woman? She sounds wonderful. We want to hear more of it. And so... They, I'm not sure what the transition was, but eventually they were looking for someone to read news and they thought, well, if there's been that reaction to her voice, just her voice, then, you know, she's she looks all right, so uh, she'd probably be great as a newsreader. I don't think they realised at the time how groundbreaking that was because there was no other female newsreader on air, either in Brisbane or Melbourne or Sydney or any of the major markets anywhere in Australia at the time but it just came about just like chance. Mm, imagine being a fly on a wall when someone pitched that idea and said how about we get Melody to do it and they said no mate we can't do that. Exactly and, so the, then she and these days they, they'd have to run it past you know half a dozen test audiences or something whereas then it was just up to the the nous or the the gut feeling of the station manager at the time. So then she goes on to become the first woman in Australia to read a prime time television news bulletin and not only that she wins a Logie for it. So yes. she's the first female news presenter to win a Logie and what did it say on the Logie? Can you remember? <laughs> I can indeed and we often laugh about this. It said acknowledged ability in a man's domain. Can you imagine 
anyone getting an award with that sort of uh, <laughs> inscription. Slapdown. Oh, my goodness. And I did, um, I could show you later, but I bought it, I found some photos. My sister, who's a fantastic archivist, uh, when my both my parents passed away, there was heaps of photos, some of which that I didn't even know existed. And um, so I was just going through some of them this morning so that I could show you. And there are, just the tone of some of the publicity photos was very sexist at the time, you know. And mum... Mum and I have never never talked about it when she was alive, but I don't think it would have been quite as obvious back then because that was just the way society was. You know, love it or hate it, that's just the way things were. It was very much accepted that, you know, you were doing a job that was very much a man's job, you know, but that soon changed. But, like, there was Don... There's a photo there of Don Seckham helping Mum put a makeup on. I mean, could you imagine, you know... <laughs> What would a man know about this? It was just so, the whole tone was so, you know, oh, yes, we'll, we'll let you into the boys' club, you know, because you seem to show a bit of promise sort of thing. But, um, yeah, that was just the tone of the times. Yeah. And um, her, her voice um, was so renowned, as you said, and I read somewhere where someone said, um, diction, beautiful voice, an instrument that hit all the right notes. So it was obviously something that really resonated with people. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know. Why? I know that at the time, um, probably all round, but mum, and this is where just that confluence of influences, you know, will all uh, create, you know, what mum sort of became. But mum's mother, my grandmother, was very into speech and drama. So I would imagine probably at the time a lot of parents wanted their children to be able to speak properly you know and, and enunciate and, and uh, you know diction and, and all of that so they would send them along to something like the June Daly Watkins School of Deportment where it wasn't just how you carry yourself but how you spoke so mum went through all that and also did speech and drama and went into a Steadfords in Bundaberg in the speech and drama thing mainly because her mother wanted her to but she enjoyed it as well and I think so that probably gave her that Diction. And she was also a, a choir singer from a very young age, so I suppose her voice was polished or honed through singing. But I, I just think her mother being into, you know, such a, a dramatist um, probably helped her as well, even though she probably wasn't aware of it at the time. But when I think back on it, it was probably those, you know, um, amalgamation of all those factors mm. that, that made mum's presentation style so good. And yet she didn't have that sort of fake English accent that a lot of no. the early newsreaders had, didn't, didn't they? Particularly no. some of the men? You're right. Although, and I think at the time, everyone did. And I don't know that um, it was probably good that mum didn't. And I think it was particularly the men. You're right. When you listen to uh, journalists, I was watching a documentary on ABC the other night that was set in... Uh, 1969 or something and they all tried to sound like they were English and it was ridiculous and I don't think that was so much the case for the women so mum didn't really have that but having said that um, even now a mate of mine has posted in the uh, about a year ago some uh, ads that mum did in the 70s for uh, an electrical retailer called Chandler's and that was mum became known in the 70s as the Chandler's lady. Just but quickly tell me the joke the joke, why, oh, don't, right. why don't you buy a bed from Chandler's? <laughs> so Chandler's slogan was always, we stand behind the product for, we sell. So mum would love a dollar for every time she went to a wedding where the best man made his speech. And uh, don't uh, don't buy your bed from Chandler's because Melody Isle stands behind the product she sells and she'll be there. <laughs> so, ah, good dad jokes, <laughs> they rule. But I play them now 
and mum's voice sounds so clipped and so proper you know and it was all those things that people obviously liked about it are there that great diction but people don't talk like that now you know and as much as I could admire mum's skill Chandler's would never choose mum now if you know the the situation was brought forward now to do their ads because her style would be too old-fashioned so it's just a matter of sort of times move on I guess and what's popular at the time I'll just remind the listeners that they're on 4DDB and you're with me Megan O'Hara Sullivan in Big Little Small Talk and we're speaking with David Eilert today he's talking about his parents Jim and Melody Eilert who were part of a vanguard of children's television in Brisbane in the early 60s and 70s David, tell me about what it was like with your mother's fame. What was that like? What age would you have been then? When, well, I, so mum when started. When she won the Logie. When she won the Logie, uh, my brother was only, would have only just, no, actually, that would have been pre-kids. So mum and dad were married, but she still took her maiden name, so it's still to Melody Welsh on the, the Logie Award. Um, but my brother wasn't born till 65, so, and I wasn't born till 69, so uh, all of this is just, things that I've seen video of and, and everything. So um, by the time I was sort of an age that I would remember things, Mum had stopped reading the news, but she was very much doing Chandler's ads and she was she went back to doing weekend news. So I don't know why, I think she just wanted to keep her, her hand in. So every weekend, Saturday and Sunday, Mum and Dad were big entertainers and so we'd often have family round or guests around for a barbecue on a Sunday. And my memory is always of Mum having to, you know, sneak upstairs or basically withdraw from the party and go upstairs and do a make-up and at five o'clock she'd have to... Uh, hit the road up to the the mountain to be ready for the six o'clock news and sometimes us kids would go with her and you know sit in the corner of the studio and watch it all unfold which was just fantastic you know Mm. at the time we didn't think anything of it but it was a great opportunity and what about being (laughs) recognized like if you're out at Indrapilly shopping town or something would people recognize her yeah what was that like as a kid as a famous a kid of a famous person I don't it's odd that because I don't remember that as being in some ways and this will sound really conceited but it's not it's just probably the order that I came as the third child to me that's as long as I'd known as long as I can remember mum and dad had always been sort of famous in in some way whatever they did was had changed but there was always some element of fame so to me it wasn't really that big a deal but mum used to always have I mean mum wasn't she didn't seek out fame or she didn't relish fame and nor did dad they were just not that's just not who they were this was just a job they did <clears throat> but mum was filming something at Chandler's at um, Indrapilly shopping town one afternoon and um, so they were taking a break and, and so she was just sitting out on one of the seats out in the, the mall um, having a cigarette because she used to smoke in those days probably or having a coke or something Coca-Cola, <laughs> and uh, and she uh, was sitting back to back with these two teenage girls. She said, "Oh, look, they're filming something at Chandler's. Oh, they're doing an ad. Oh, I wonder if Melody Olive's there." And Mum just said, "She is." <laughs> and they go, "Oh my goodness!" <laughs> so, David, it wouldn't be a stretch to think all of that early exposure to that sort of medium is that what stimulated your love? Do you think of broadcasting? Not at all. Not at all. And it's really odd because people often assume that. And I suppose maybe subliminally it did. But I think, you know, most kids would probably run a mile than want to, you know, consciously choose what their parents do. I mean, that's not always the case. And it wasn't a conscious thing. But 
I don't know, I just, as a kid growing up, I didn't see what mum and dad did as being all that big a deal. So the only, I didn't really know what I wanted to do right through high school. I was one of these kids who just had no idea. I had these vague ideas that I wanted to be a, a journalist, but I didn't really apply myself at school. I'm one of these people that probably was at school, and this is probably typical for fellas, you know, that ain't mature as, as quickly as, <laughs> as as females. That's right. So Frontal lobe, we're talking. Absolutely, and it's absolutely true. You know, I've seen this now with my own kids, and it's 100% true. So had I gone to high school two years later, I probably would have been great, but I just had no idea. So I won't tell you what my TE score was, but it was, it was pretty abhorrent. Not a lot of... Um not relationship counselling, career counselling at Toowong High? No, there wasn't. No, not really at all. It was basically set you down, do you know what you want to do? No, oh well here's a booklet that has every career under the sun, you know, just go through and pick one and you'll you'll turn out fine. But um, a friend of my, my father actually ran a uh, a television present or no a radio presenting school called ATV, the Australian Institute of Radio and Television, which he ran with um, John Knott since the late 60s through till about 1990, I think it was. And um, so my a friend of my brother's named Guy Dobson had done Dad's course. He decided in grade 12 that he wanted to be a radio presenter. And he'd done it, it was only a night course, so he'd done it while he was at senior. On his last day of school, that coincided with when he finished ATV, he applied for the first job that he saw, which he got, which was a 4CD in Gladstone, which was a commercial station, went up there, moved into a caravan in a caravan park that overlooked the aluminium smelter. <laughs> and as a teenager, I thought that was something to aspire to. I thought, how glamorous could you get? On the first day of his job, he got to interview the lead singer of My Sex, which were a huge band at the time. You'd remember My Sex, Megan, I'm sure. And uh, I it's just very thought... very electronic, My Sex, wasn't They were, it? yes, yeah, very sort of robotic movements. Like, huge, huge they were. And I just thought, that's the life for me. <laughs> so then I started to take a vague interest in what mum and dad did. The wood for the trees, you know, because your mate's yeah. up there doing it. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. And I'm sure that, you know, dad in particular, I mean, dad was never, oh, someone must must follow in the footsteps. But I think all parents probably secretly hope that maybe they've had some sort of influence over their kids. But I think dad was probably just a little bit relieved that maybe someone was at least taking an interest. But, yeah, it was never what mum and dad did because I suppose what they did wasn't, it was a bit, like I certainly didn't want to go and do ads and dad had been out of television for a long time by then. So I suppose even though they made such a mark in media, it wasn't in jobs that I was overly interested in, in doing. So I suppose there wasn't that direct influence either, I mm. guess. But um, yeah, you might say I was a late bloomer. <laughs> <laughs> like most boys, as That's you right. say. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just before we finish talking about your mum, preparing for this interview, David, what struck me was... Uh, how much stuff was available on the web, you know, and how much footage? Is that a weird feeling to be able to... I suppose you've seen all of it, of the stuff of your mother, but I did read this lovely um, tribute to her after she had died, and she died in 2017, I believe. That's right, yep. And it was a lady who... And you mentioned it before. It was a lady who knew your mother through the Wesley Breast Clinic, and she said she was always just such a lovely person to be at the desk, and I thought... No, she just seemed like such a lovely woman. 
a yeah. lovely warm and do you think that that was part of her a big part of her personality that I she think was very so. warm yeah i think so she um and also i think the fact that and mum and dad were both like this that they didn't media had never well i suppose in mum's case she had aspired to it but they they'd never got caught up with the the status of it or the fame it was always i want to do this because this is a job that I want to do, but neither of them were ever big on the, the fame thing. Not that they rejected it or, or, you know, avoided being out in public because that was part of the job, but they never sought after or relished the fame side of it. So I think, um, you know, mum just, that was just how mum was. You know, she was a very warm and, and giving and generous person. You know, I mean, I was amazed at the amount of time that mum would put in, you know, helping me with homework and, and that sort of thing and uh, you know she was just she lived for her family you know extended family her direct family and, and friends and um, that was all that that life was to her and I think probably just that there was none of that conceitedness or sort of air of superiority that sometimes not always uh, but probably more so in those days I think than now that you get with some media personalities mum and dad were never like that so I think you know, that's a lovely tribute. And in terms of all the stuff that's there, I think that's great, you know, because I, you know, um, I remember when when Dad passed away, which was 2005, and I didn't... There was probably a lot of stuff there that Mum and Dad had kept, but I wasn't aware that any of it was there. And um, so um, Spencer Housen in, in Brisbane, as I was working for the ABC at the time, Dad had done an, a couple of interviews with Spencer and he'd done a, a longer... Um, conversation hour type interview with Peter Gooch who started that format that Richard Feidler took over and Spencer sent me this um, hour long interview that he uh, that Peter Gooch had done with dad and it was sort of like oh my god we've got this it was like a warm blanket being put over me because I didn't think that you know I had anything left of, of dad at all so it's great that electronic thing that fact that the public or the world will keep track of things that you perhaps haven't bothered to put aside your, yourself was, is just wonderful, you know, because if it was 40 years before or something, you know, if you didn't keep stuff like that yourself, then it was lost to time. And so, particularly yeah. having a recording and a visual. So just, I want to talk about your dad, um, as per usual, I'm probably going to run out of time too much, but just tell me about the trip that you and your siblings did on the GAN with your mum. Ah. Oh. <laughs> that was great. It was so fantastic. Because Dad died in 2005 and Mum was quite well then when Dad died. But Mum was the type, and it wasn't a situation that Dad played on. It, it's just the way it turned out that Mum was quite happy to defer everything to Dad in terms of, you know, paying the bills and looking after, you know, could we afford house extensions? Yes, we could. Could they afford to put a pool in? Yes, they could. That was Dad's, that's just... Mum was happy to leave all that to Dad. So when Dad passed away, Mum suddenly was inundated with all this stuff that she didn't have any understanding. And I think, so that probably accelerated Mum. So Mum ended up dying of dementia in, in 2017. But it was a very slow and very gradual, uh, you know, descent, if, if you like. It probably, you wouldn't have even called it dementia, I suppose, initially, but it was sort of this overall feeling of, helplessness that I guess probably kicked in maybe five years after after dad died but then she was diagnosed with dementia and you know she had to move into a, a nursing home and my sister was aware that mum had always said that had you know when dad died 
at the time he died, one of the things they'd always wanted to do was to take a, a trip on the, the GAN. So, um, you know, and mum had some uh, money left in, the, in her account that she would be happy to, to pay for it. So my sister organised for mum and uh, my sister and myself, no partners or anything, just basically the family to go on the, to do this trip that mum had always wanted to, to and, take. And your other brother? Uh, yeah, your brother, and my other brother, brother Chris, Chris yeah. yeah, so Chris Ingrid and myself. And, which was very weird because you don't, it was almost like going back to being, living at home again, you know, it was the most bizarre thing, but it was just fantastic. And, you know, mum, I think, she was still well enough to appreciate it, but we were also able to see, you know, how she was declining, but she still really, really, enjoyed it and um it was just one of those priceless trips you know that you would very rarely get a chance to to take you know i mean we i don't think any of us three kids could have afforded to do it that way by ourselves and um but just to spend that quality time with mum you know i i think about aspects of that trip every day you know and that was back in 2016 you know so it was just it was superb it was really 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 couldn't have been better you know to be confined like that and yet have enough sort of space and yet to spend all of that really close time together it's just beautiful i remember you coming back and saying how much you enjoyed it but as you say the dynamics of going back to where you fit in the family that's right who's the boss and who's the bossy one and who's the yeah absolutely yeah yeah the roles that you play and those lines sort of became clearly defined not in a bad way at all but you know things don't change and that's good you know that was a, a good thing but it was just unusual to be back in that dynamic again but really quite comforting as well yeah i'll just to remind the listeners that they're on 4ddb and you're with me megan o'hara sullivan in our segment called big little small talk and today we're talking to david Eilif. we've just been speaking about his groundbreaking mother melody who was the first woman to win a logie for news presenting in australia mind you and now we're going to talk about the extraordinary career of your father who had a huge military life before he became a children's television presenter. So he was um, captured by the Japanese, he had shrapnel in his leg, he stole a boat, he stole food, they were on the open sea for three days, landed on an island rescued by Dutch soldiers. That's right. What sort of man was he besides looking like Thomas Keneally? <laughs> He looked incredibly like Thomas Keneally, you're absolutely right. Um, he was just a life of adventure. It was quite incredible. And I gave a, a talk at Cobbenco. They invited me because I told Jeff, the curator there, Dad's story just in conversation. He said, oh, that'd make a good curator conversation. So that sort of made me put it all together. And, you know, really, really proud because Dad, a bit like Mum, Dad's life was probably just a result of things that just happened that he took advantage of you know so he was 17 you know not old enough to sign up for the war when they declared war and he was up in king's cross at the time and all of his mates were signing up so he signed up and managed to you know i don't think they did great checks about age and that sort of thing they just wanted everyone they could get and a whole heap of amazing things that happened before they even left australia but then the whole escape from singapore was i mean to me amazing story because the Allies had surrendered at the time, but the Japanese soldiers hadn't come into Singapore. And they all knew that had they waited to be captured, they would have been ended up on the Thai Burma Railway. And Dad was injured at the time. I mean, I, we were talking about this just the other night because my son and I watched the um, Colin Firth film, The Railway Man, which is a fantastic film, highly recommended. 
but that whole thing that happened to to those gentlemen could well have happened to to dad you know there wasn't a lot of mercy if you were injured you know you were no good to them so you either would have been worked to to death or you know you would have fallen behind and probably been killed who knows but it wouldn't have been a good situation so um yeah dad and his mates and dad the fact that dad was injured at the time his mates still went up and made sure they got him when they hatched this plan to steal this boat even though an injured man would have you know been a bit of a drag and, and would have sort of hindered their progress but that was that aussie mateship you know they weren't going to leave him behind which is amazing i think but um, yeah, just that whole story of then you know, getting to, to uh, Sumatra and then having to find a, a ship home and the ship that they nearly got on ended up being bombed. It was a, a ship that was um, filled with nurses and was bombed in one of the, the straits there. But the ship they ended up on, you know, got them home. And the whole time, Dad's family thought that he was dead because, or missing in action, you know, that's presume after a certain amount of time that he'd, he'd been killed so he got back to Australia and was able to give them a call from a phone box and that's just amazing I just can't get over that but then you know uh, he was honorably discharged because of his injury so they gave all soldiers or former soldiers uh, the opportunity to go and learn to be pilots over in Canada on the government you know and quite a few soldiers did dad did and then because he'd always wanted to fly that was so that they could be fighter pilots but by the time he'd done his training the war was over so he came back and became a commercial pilot you know and I think that all I mean that led to the whole Captain Jim scenario you know he still had his his pilot's cap and everything from commercial pilots so that was just a good outfit and a good persona that he could become on television Captain Jim you know king of the kids but yeah everything was just purely by chance you know. So how did he make the leap from being really Captain Jim to Captain Jim television presenter? Well that was again just that that time in Brisbane when television was starting up the logical place to to source both on-air and off-air talent was from radio so virtually everyone on radio unless they were shy and bashful and didn't want the spotlight um, were leaping at the chance to, to be on television. So how did he make the leap from pilot to radio then? Well that was he'd always wanted he'd always had an interest in in radio but I'm not sure how seriously he'd taken it he was working as an advertising copywriter at the time that he signed up to go to war but from a young age he was fascinated by radio and he, he writes in his diaries that his father took him um, after school uh, one day up to 2GB in Sydney uh, and they got there in the evening to watch the evening show being presented and these people, the presenters, were dressed up in dinner suits and you know, he asked his father, oh why, did we, why are they doing that? And his father asked the engineer and the engineer said, well <clears throat> they're presenting a program at dinner time so they have to feel the part they have to be in the in the zone sort of thing and dad was just fascinated by the whole world of radio so he just put his hand up he ended up flying um he was based in Inverell up in northern New South Wales and uh, a job came up at 2NZ <coughs> Inverell and uh, he'd done a little bit of radio while he was in Canada at a, a sort of a station within the the army base there and um so he just hopped in there and and uh, got the job and did that for a few years met his first wife and then I'm not sure why they wanted to go to Brisbane but they decided to move to Brisbane um, I know why he left 2NZ but he uh, in Brisbane he had arrived and went into 4BC just to introduce himself and they had just finished interviews for an afternoon announcer position no not taking any more 
but Dad, because he had the gift of the gab, got talking to the manager and, you know, after about an hour of not a formal interview, um, he got the job. So he ended up doing a, it wasn't music back then, it was a, like a kid's radio program, it was on after, after school. So that then translated to him being a logical kid's television presenter. And Dad, I think, just adapted to television without, you know, without any problem at all because he was just that sort of gregarious person so again just the the things happen by chance that mm. probably just wouldn't happen like that these days you know it's <laughs> Un- amazing unfortunately yeah, yeah David right. you mentioned that he that was his first wife did he have any children with his first yes, wife yes yeah he had one son um Peter yeah so Peter was always sort of our our um we always call him stepbrother but he essentially a half brother you know so Peter was always this you know not mysterious figure we got to know him quite well but um we'd go around and see him every christmas and peter was successful in his own right he was a puppeteer and um, then started a computer company and got interested in that and was quite wealthy then ran a restaurant he owned the 12th night theater in in brisbane uh, for quite some time because that's where they had originally done puppet shows he was just a real entrepreneur so every year the christmas gifts that peter would get would give us would become more you know, lavish or, or, you know, unusual. So it was always a highlight of our year to go and see Peter on Christmas Eve. But then as we got older and got to know him, it became a really good relationship as well. So he was just like our brother, only much, much older. But mm, yeah. What a fascinating story. Tell me about growing up with a father that's larger than life figure, you know, the military career, the pilot, the television personality. Was he... The alpha male or not like no, that at all? not at all. No, that wasn't Dad. I mean, Dad, you know, there was a big generation gap, I think, between me and Dad because Dad was 49 because it, Mum was his second marriage and I was the youngest of, uh, of three. And there's three years between my... Well, two years between me and my sister and then three years between my brother and I. So by the time I came along, Dad was 49, you know, which I didn't realise was not significant to me at the time until... I turned 49 and I thought, and my kids were, you know, probably, you know, in their teens then. And it just hit me, my God, this idea of having a new child and changing nappies and all that when you're 49 is just extraordinary. But um, so there was a big generation gap, but not in a bad way, not in a negative way. But, you know, dad didn't sort of quite get, I think, particularly when we became teenagers, you know, why we were into some things and why we... You know, when he dropped us off to school, he had to park, you know, <laughs> five kilometres away, you know, had to appear like we just had walked all the way to school because that was cool. Um, but um, what I was always aware of, though, was that Dad was just such a gifted speaker. So you'd get dragged along as a teenager, you know, to some events that Dad would have to host. Long after he was on television, he was still asked to, to host things. You know, that's how big his reputation was. And he was a member of Rotary, so he was just the go-to person to host anything. And even as a teenager, even before I wanted to do radio, I was just in awe of my dad's ability to just get up and speak, you know, and, and pick up a microphone and speak in a way that people just heard him you know and he wasn't that alpha male he didn't play on it but he it was just that old-fashioned thing that he knew how to present you know he knew how to call people to attention he had that easy manner he knew when to tell a, a joke he had you know a library of jokes in his in his head and he was just a gifted presenter and I was always in awe of that or or admiring of that and so was mum too like neither of them were really big on 
radio and all that, but mum used to always, we'd go home after something like that and mum would always say something like, you did good, Jim. <laughs> and I'd be saying, yeah, he really did. So, yeah. so what was their relationship like, can you remember? Like, was he ever um, freaked out by her fame or do you think no. they were real equals? No, real equals. Dad just never, you know, wanted any... In fact, it's funny, and Mum only told me this probably about three weeks before she died. We didn't talk a lot. I thought I knew all the, the stories of how she'd got her job in television and how her and Dad got together. <clears throat> but one thing I didn't know that she um, told us, but uh, told me one time when I went to see her by myself, there was a... Uh, we had a uh, photo album in the room that she was um, staying in, so she was in a fairly high-care nursing home by then. But they'd said, oh, if you put together a... a a photo album of, of old shots that's often good to, to jog memories of people with Alzheimer's and, and dementia. So we had this and we were looking through it and mum said, gee, I didn't want to be a, um, a television news reader. It wasn't something that I'd sought out. You know, she didn't say it in these words, but um, she said, I just loved being production assistant on television, on your dad's show and whatever show. I just, to me, that was the dream job. So when they came and said, do you want to... Uh, we'd love you to be a newsreader. She said, I'll do it on one condition, that I can still be a production assistant as well and I'll just read news at night. But unless I can hang on to my old job, then I don't want to do it. And Dad always said, Dad said to her, um, or she told me that Dad said to her, no, you really should, this is a fantastic opportunity, you should embrace this, you know, you can't do two jobs, but, you know, this is this will be really good for you. But she had to be talked into it. And so Dad wasn't jealous at all. It was never a competitive thing whatsoever. You know, it's just not how they were. Good for Jim, I say. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Maybe him being a little bit older and um, he was so. very supportive. Yeah, Now, yeah. David, I'm getting to the end of my time, unfortunately. Yeah, you I can then go on. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been a joy. It's been such a privilege to hear the story. You go on to become a broadcaster and a journalist in your own right. You spent some time down in Broken Hill in Tasmania before you came up here. You get married and you have two boys. That's right. um, we talked before about going on the GAN with your mum. I know one of your boys is or was very obsessed with trains, is that? Tell That's me, right. Tell me about your two boys. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So both my boys were uh, diagnosed with autism fairly early, but they're high-functioning autism. So it's without get, getting too bogged down in the definition, you know, in both cases, I think when they were young, if they were here with us now, you'd, you'd notice in a myriad ways, but now I think you'd barely notice at all. But Ben, my youngest, one typical trait of, of autistic boys in particular is latching on to one particular interest and, and milking it for all it's worth. So Ben was always really quite obsessed with trains. Started with Thomas and then developed into real trains, you know, without faces on the front. And now it's just developed into uh, fascination with anything historic, you know, so he's real Anglophile. So he's going to he's going to take me to England at the end of this year, paid for by himself, which I'm tell you what talk about kids keeping in the, you in the style that you weren't accustomed to it's fantastic I'm hoping he doesn't change his mind now I'm trying to suck up to him but um yeah so he was always so he wanted to uh, to go on this particular trip on the the GAN and at one stage there was speculation I can't remember why but that my brother might not be able to go and I remember I don't think I said it to Ingrid my sister who was organizing it but I was going to say 
Ben could go. You know, you know, don't waste the space. Ben would love it. You know, but in the end, he didn't get to go. But um, yeah, we we'll... talked about mm. having to park up the street um, when may, may, making your father do that. And I think anyone who's raised teenagers, did your boys go through similar sorts of things? Not really. Only because they ended up being homeschooled because of of their um, being uh, on the. Well, Asperger's, I suppose, high-functioning uh, autism. So my wife and I, or my wife, really opted to um, homeschool them because the education system wasn't able to really cater to special needs kids. It still isn't, and that's not the fault of the education system. They just have to cater for the middle ground. That's the way life is. But um, so because there weren't as many of those situations of dropping them off to school or dropping them off to after-school activities, we didn't really get that but I think on the plus side is that neither of my kids are really have never really been caught up in those sort of fads those things that I must have this brand or I must have this because they've sort of been I mean they've always been social but they've been never been in that schoolyard thing where fashion and how you look is a competitive thing so thankfully so no history didn't replicate itself in, in that way at all. Good, good and bad. Yeah good and I, bad. Definitely. Either of them have any interest in broadcasting? No no not at all I think um, the only time Ben has ever even expressed any admiration and I don't say this is a bad thing I think it's quite refreshing is um, I had to give a talk or take part in a panel once at, at some something that I went to on a Sunday afternoon and Ben came along and at the end of it you know Ben said wow so you did all that you didn't have any notes at all you were just talking in front of this group and I said yeah that's just that's that's what I do that's what my job involves and he was like wow you know and I remember thinking that's probably how I was with my dad you know like how do you manage to do all this without notes but that didn't translate in him wanting to be you know a radio presenter although every day when I get home he says so did you interview anyone interesting today and he always laughs because I have to look at my diary to see who I interviewed because once you finished one program all you're thinking about is the next day's program so I can't believe that you've got a teenager who asks you a no. question <laughs> that is um, good parenting on, I on tell you your what. wife's behalf exactly I, should, I suggest got to tap into that for as long as it lasts but he is he does have my and my dad's I think I'd like to dad passed it on to me a, a natural curiosity he's so curious about the world you know nothing's naff or daft everything is warrants exploring further which I think is a great trait so you know he's often very impressed by the people I get to talk to and not not famous people just old I spoke to this person about you know whatever and he'll say oh wow so what did they have to you know he's really naturally curious so I think if he ever wanted to get into broadcasting it wouldn't be because of it's the media it'd be more because of the people that you have access to you know which is really the great selling point of a career in media anyway I the, think yeah. the joy of it oh it's wonderful now David my very two last questions one I'm going to ask you and I don't know how you feel about the royal family there's a bit <laughs> swirling around at the moment with the um spare the book spare yes, coming out by yep. Harry. if I was to ask you who your favorite royal person is what would you answer I would say and I don't know how many people would would say this in answer to that question but Kate Middleton I think is brilliant. It is Kate, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Such is my in-depth knowledge of the royal family. And the reason is, and it's just, it's come to light, you know, you sort of watch people from afar, you know, you, you 
can only rely on media coverage, but it just seems with all this scandal with Harry and Megan and, and Megan supposedly going into the royal family only for what she could get out of it and then them whinging about the intrusion and blah, blah, blah. And that's all legitimate. But Kate seems to be so classy because she got into it with her eyes wide open. You know, she fell in love with William, presumably. It wasn't like her parents' marriage. It was genuine love. But if, if Who magazine is to be believed, that last bastion of quality journalism, at some stage William gave her the chance to escape. You know, go, it's a trap, it's a trap, run away, have a normal life. She did that for a while. She came back in fully eyes wide open, knowing that there were downsides, but there were also plus sides. You know, you would never work independently again, but you could pursue issues that were important to you and help them through your, your royal persona. And she's embraced it for everything that it's worth. And I just think she's a classy, classy lady, you know, compared to many others who have come into the royal family. So, yeah, she would be my favourite, I think. Excellent. You're thinking um, not so high on the class Richter scale was Fergie with the toe sucking. No, no, no. That was probably a bit of a um, bit of a blip on the royal radar. You know, not that I care about it all that much. But I mean, but, you know, she's an example, I suppose, of you know maybe she didn't know what she was getting into, or, or you know, obviously it's a bit of a burden being part of that family. You know, and if you're born into it. The, the horror gradually unfolds as you get older, I think. But if you marry into it, I think you've got to go in eyes wide open, you know. And, and I think out of everyone who was married into the royal family, Kate seems to have sort of taken it for what it is and embraced it for what it's worth, I think. That would be a whole other show that we could talk about the media's role in the... Um, oh, the, absolutely. The yeah. And I, I don't think the media are... are you know, have clean hands by any stretch of the imagination. It's a real. I find that really, really interesting. Actually, mm, yeah. the phone tapping and all the rest. Yeah. But anyway, mm. in our dying minute of our interview um, on Big Little Small Talk, David, what is the song that can't keep you off the dance floor? Oh, that would definitely be Uptown Funk. I know it's a bit, it's a bit sort of you know fogeyish now, but you know, to me, that's just it's got great. I'm a drummer and I love drumming to it and. Um, uh, I just love it. That would definitely get me on the dance floor without needing to have had a few drinks beforehand. So well, I'm not saying that. the result would be pretty, but that would definitely get me on the dance floor. Other people what? would throw me off. Then. Uh, what's that line? Here's my cup, put some liquor in it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. I love that song. I'm sure Leroy will be able to find it in the record library. Oh, perhaps. yes, yes. Perhaps um, Leroy's got a record librarian willing to find it for him, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> a little melody to Yeah, that's right, and exactly. Find, and and they, can, they can let her on air, provided she doesn't open the microphone and talk, for God's sake. That's Definitely right. Not. David Isla, thank you so much for being my guest Pleasure. on Being a Little Small Talk. It's just been a joy to hear about your family and um, and being so open and generous with the, your life story. Thank you. Oh, a pleasure. No, it's been great. Megan, thank you. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining me on Big Little Small Talk. I hope you can make the time to join me next week. If you've enjoyed this episode please subscribe on your favourite podcast app.